Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Cadaver Synod. This one is a wild ride, my friend, so make sure you've strapped yourselves in here. Buckle uh, buckle those seatbelts up, my friends, because I tell you what, we are off to the races. We're going all the way back to the 9th century here. This is the story of when a pope dug up another pope, who was dead at the time, thankfully, didn't, didn't dig up a live pope. They're not like potatoes. You don't tend to grow them in the ground. You know, he dug up, he dug up one of his, uh, his predecessors and put him on trial. So let's get into this one and have a chat about exactly what sort of precipitated this ridiculous milestone in, in the Buckwild history of the Catholic Church, kicking things off in 18, 18, not 18, 864. So long, long time ago now. It's what's known in historical uh, circles as a bloody long time ago here, 864. There's this bloke, Formosus, right? And he becomes the Bishop of Porto, which is in Rome. Now, this bloke, Red Hot Pistol, he is the church bloody love him. He's doing all the priestly things, going around, converting blokes like the priests in Age of Empires, bloody Wallolo, having a great time, all that sort of stuff. And in particular, he does a bang-up job of, of spreading Catholicism to the kingdom of the Bulgars, or just Bulgaria, if you like, right? He's actually too talented for his own good, a bit of a victim of his own success, because he's invited to be a bishop over there after having converted all these people. He's going around there, sh- you know, shaking hands, getting rid of all the bloody, sweeping out all the paganism and all that sort of, you know, all, the, all that heathen rubbish, that sort of stuff. And uh, they love him so much, it's like, mate, Formosus, you've got to come and, uh, and, and post up here, become our bishop. Now, this is against the rules, as for some reason, you're not allowed to have more than one bishopric. And the Pope at the time, Nicholas I, he gets arced up about Formosus getting you know, a little bit too big for his boots and tell, tells him to, to pull his bloody head in. Now, despite the fact that Formosus is doing a very good job at you know his job, obviously the politics of the upper echelons of the Catholic Church, the papacy already kicking in here, and, and Nicholas I realising, geez, this Formosus bloke, better keep an eye on him because, again, he might be, uh, as I say, getting a little bit too big for his boots. Anyway, Formosus, good bloke that he is, he says, no worries, mate, chill out, I'll just stick around here in Rome. Buggy, you know, those, those Bulgarians and, the, and, you know, the beautiful natural, you know, wonders of that area and, the, you know, the lakes, the mountains, all that sort of stuff. It's so, so beautiful. But no, I much prefer all the, the dirt and the noise and, you know, the, the rubbish on all the streets of disgusting, horrible Rome anyway. So for now, Formosus is put on the sidelines. Even, you know, even after this man of the match performance that he's put on as a, as a missionary in Bulgaria, he is uh, he's, he's on the bench now. Nonetheless, Formosus is still very, very bloody popular over there, and his political adversaries have, have begun to sort of wake up to this, as I say. Uh, we're going to wake up to the fact that he's cobbling together a fair bit of political clout. You know, as I say, he's sick of all this political rubbish, and in 876, he actually leaves Rome, so he buggers off altogether. His final act before he, uh, he does this is uh, recommending a bloke whose name was uh, Charles the Bald for the position of Holy Roman Empire and uh, Emperor. And this isn't all that important to the story here, but I, I do want to sneak in a little quick chat about Charles the Bald because this bloke, he, I tell you what, he was a bloody funny bastard he was. First of all, what kind of a name is Charles the Bald? You know, we've got towering figures from history called William the Conqueror or Vlad the Impaler, Alexander the Great, and instead he ends up as 
Charles the Bald, not really the, you know, the moniker that you want. But what's even funnier about this nickname is that he wasn't actually bald at all. He quite the opposite. He was as he was he was called Charles the Bald because he was as, as hairy as a shower drain. This 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 bloke just just had a nickname given to him by people take, taking the piss. And what's even better is it after his kids all end up with ridiculous names as well. So some of his kids well and truly get the short end of the stick. Uh, one of his sons is called Louis the Stammerer. Uh, for you know reasons I'll, I'll leave to you to divine. Uh, one of his sons is called Charles the Simple, which is a, a pretty... I mean, that's some ferocious shade you're throwing on this poor kid here. But the best one, second best one, is Charles the Child. I mean, yeah, obviously we all were at some stage. What was he doing? Little four-year-old there, oh, look at this oh, little kid. Oh, Charles the Child, oh, what an idiot. But the best one, the best one, Lothar the Lame. Oh, no, guys, uh, I don't want to come out tonight. Sorry, I've got work in the morning. Oh, you guys have a good time, though. And he sits and you know sits at home watching Netflix and eating you know pizza rolls. Anyway, Formosus, he buggers off from Rome, and that should have been the end of it. But the Pope at this stage, who is a bloke named uh, John VIII, he's very keen to shore up his power and, and eliminate any potential rivals, and he recognises Formosus as one of these potential rivals, something of a threat to his, uh, his, you know, his papacy here. And so he just, he just uh, you know, despite this bloke already having essentially exiled himself, John VIII reckons just for good measure he'll excommunicate him, just you know, erase him from the picture well and, well and truly here. And he does this with you know, a little sort of legal chicanery. There's a recently passed law that bans bishops from openly campaigning to become pope. It all had to be you know, proper cloak and dagger type stuff back then. And he uses that as a justification to excommunicate poor old Formosus, as well as talking about how you know, he's power hungry with all this stuff in Bulgaria. Whatever, Lo- load of nonsense. But Formosus, he doesn't care. He just raises a very tall, very frosty middle finger towards the Vatican as he marches out of Rome and into exile. No worries, mate. Now, it might not surprise you to learn that old mate John VIII, who was, again, a bloke who was very ready to excommunicate a vague rival at the, at the drop of a, a silly pointy bishop hat, made a fair few enemies during his time in the top job. In fact, he becomes the first ever pope to be assassinated. This happens in 882. An assassin is hired and poisons this poor bastard. After John has, uh, you know, drunk this sneakily administered poison, the assassin is waiting there behind the, the curtain or whatever, I don't know, for him to drop dead. But it's taking too long to kick in, right? So he's drunk the poison down, but it doesn't seem to be having any effect. It's, take, it's taking too long. So this assassin, you know, he's impatient or, I don't know, maybe he's worried he's going to be late for his hairdresser's appointment or something, I don't know. He, he grabs his big hammer and just smashes John, John's brains out of his head, just like that. Now this assassin, as you know, there is a we from what we can piece together about this bloke, he was he was the master assassin. He was obviously one of the one of the greatest uh, masters of his trade that we've ever come across because he ran the full spectrum of subtlety. Right, he, he worked with poisons all the way up to you know great big stonking warhammers like this, and we don't even know this bloke's name. So again, he is the perfect assassin. He obviously you know absolutely outshone the sun when it came to uh, when it came to assassinations. Anyway. After the contents of uh, poor old John VIII's head are used for a, a spot of impromptu interior decorating, uh, we go through this revolving door of new popes, essentially, and none of them stick around for very long at all. John VIII is succeeded by Marinus I, who lasts for 18 months before Adrian III has a crack for just over a year. Now, Stephen V lasts for a little longer. He hangs about for a couple of years. But when he dies, guess who's quietly waiting in the wings? It's our boy. It's Formosus. He'd had the excommunication overturned in 883, and had just been biding his time, and, and now he pounces like a tiger when Steve the uh, the fifth dies, right? 
And in 891, he becomes the Pope, gives, you know, the big get one up here to John VIII, who, who worked so hard to keep his holy ass off the papal throne. He's, he's done it, get around him, good on him, and he does all sorts of boring stuff that we don't really need to talk about. We're not really going to get into it. For the most part, it involved just classic Pope moves, fighting Saracens, stouching with the Holy Roman Emperor. He did take the uh, he did take the, uh, the side of Charles the Simple in the ongoing blue for the French crown, so it's good to see that you know he's really backing up the, uh, the stupid name clan there in, in European politics. He seemed to really have a, a thing for Charles's with, yeah, just idiotic names. Anyway, it's not his time as the Pope that's interesting here. Quite the opposite, in fact, very boring. It's what happens after he has, has a stroke in, no, the medical kind, jeez, come on, and dies in 896. He dies on the 4th of April in that year, in 896, as I say. And, uh, and after he's dead, there are riots in the streets because this bloke was so popular. I, again, don't really know who they're rioting against here because obviously if he died then it was all part of the divine plan or whatever so they shouldn't really be angry about it but then again some Italians don't really need to get much of an excuse to get you know worked up about stuff because you see them on the soccer field if you sneeze at them they'll fall to the ground clutching their knee and begging for a red card so whatever it's fair to say the people in Rome pretty pissed off and uh, so a new pope is very quickly installed this bloke is named Boniface the sixth now this bloke Boniface maybe Maybe we should have just gone for Boniface. I really don't know how it's pronounced. Anyway, this bloke is in office for about two weeks. He's barely had time to you know, be fitted for his new silly hat and, and get his official kissing ring ready before he's stone dead. The official reason was gout, but I'll tell you this. There are a couple of raised eyebrows about it because Boniface, Boniface, I'm going to stick with that one. It's much more fun to say. And I'm doing the hand thing as well. You can't see this, but I'm, I'm speaking fluent Italian with my hands when I say this. Boniface was a, a weird uh, choice to begin with as he'd been done twice during his career as a priest for what is rather intriguingly referred to as, quote-unquote, immoral conduct. So it seems like the grand traditions of the Catholic Church really have stood the test of time when it comes to this sort of thing, doesn't it? In any case, Boniface is dead as a doornail, and whether he actually died of gout or was poisoned by an assassin with a very, very fresh haircut, it doesn't matter, because he's then succeeded by Stephen VI. Now, you can definitely have a crack at old Boniface for being a dirty dog or whatever, but I'll tell you what, Stephen VI was a straight-up wacko. He becomes the Pope on the 22nd of May in 896, a few weeks after Boniface dies. And a few months into the top job here as, uh, you know, as, as the big cheese of the Catholic Church, his uh, somewhat tenuous grip on reality gets the old butterfingers as he cranks up the crazy. Stephen hated poor old Formosus and decides that something as insignificant as his predecessor dying isn't enough, isn't enough to stop him from getting stuck right into him. So, as a result, he gets what becomes to be known as the Cadaver Synod underway. A synod is a fancy word for a church council, basically, you know, talking about when a bunch of blokes in silly hats get together and wiggle their jaws about whatever. But in this instance, the Synod had come together to put old mate Formosus, who, let's not forget, had been dead for over six months on trial for the stuff that he did while he was still a bishop. So, in around January 897, this wacko Pope Stephen VI orders that the, co- the corpse of Formosus is dug up out of the ground, whacked back into the old robes and the silly hat, of course, and plonked on a chair so it can answer to the crimes that it's been accused of. 
It's very, very interesting to read the literature surrounding this trial getting underway because of how diplomatic blokes are being about this absolutely crazy move on the part of old Steve-O here. I don't know how many historians this guy wined and dined, but you know, in all the literature that I was reading about what was going on, you know, in the lead up to the synod, and all you know, all the stuff that I was reading about why it happened, no one was just coming out and calling a spade a spade. This bloke's clearly off his trial. He's bloody bonkers, mate. There are all these theories about why the trial was held, about political alliances or attempting to deflect attention away from Stephen's own crimes and misdemeanors. The fact of the matter is, this bloke, you know, he was. He may very well have been completely insane, and I reckon the old Occam's razor might be need to brought off the bathroom shelf with a bit of shaving cream here, because that explanation probably just about covers all the facts, I would say, old, old mate. Never mind all these bloody, you know, convoluted theories about this, that and the other. This bloke was off his trolley. Anyway, this disgusting mouldy old corpse is sat up in a big old chair, and, and Stephen strides out like the bloody cock of the walk, ready to scrap with this worm-ridden hunk of ex-pope. Now, make sure you're sitting down for this next bit. As I, you know, I don't want you to collapse or fall out of your, your, your chair in shock here. The trial ends up being, believe it or not, an absolute farce. It ends up being an absolute bloody circus. I mean, who, who, would, have, you know, who would have thought? Who would have thunk it that, that that was the outcome of putting a dead pope on trial, that it would end up being a circus? But that, that was the way that it went there. Old Steve-O, he's marching up and down. He's barking questions, stuff at this poor corpse, accusing him of you know this and that and the other and having a great time. He's looking very grand in all his robes and all that sort of stuff, swishing about, pointing the finger, doing whatever else. Officially, Formosus has been charged with having two bishoprics at the same time, again, which I said, against the bloody rules, and uh, also for actively and overtly campaigning to uh, become Pope, which, as we already covered, was no good. Formosus, interestingly, didn't have too much to say in response to these charges. He, he, he kept pretty quiet. Uh, he didn't really, you know, have any response to the accusations or anything to say in his defence, and Stephen just keeps on screaming at his festering corpse, loving every minute of it. But, of course, Formosus, he's a, he's a stolid old boy, and he doesn't crack under the pressure. He just becomes slightly dustier under the pressure. And uh, Stephen... Ends up getting a bit sick of getting the old silent treatment from this corpse, let's remember. So what does he do? In for a penny, in for a pound. He's already dug up his poor, you know, this poor dead bastard and gone to the trouble of getting his old robes onto him. So he doubles down and calls in one of the deacons. Deacon scuttles over and he says, oh, yes, sir, what is it? What can I do for you? And he says, listen here, you, uh, you know, old, old, old son, listen, what, this is what you're going to do. You're now the defence attorney. Congratulations. Well done. You know, be a party later on. But right now, hop to it. Go and uh, do, you know, go and defend your client here. Do, do the best that you can. And the deacon is sort of standing there scratching his head thinking, what the bloody hell is this galoot wanting me to do here? I've got no idea what he's, what he's wanting of me. Steve-O points to the chair that the corpse is sitting on and the deacon's eyes go wide when he realises what he has to do. He's like, oh, mate, please, no, come on. No, no, just let me stand up in front of the jury, you know, do the old objection, exhibit A, all that sort of stuff. But uh, Steve-O, no, 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 he points to the chair. He says, get over there, old son. And I, oh, mate, this is absolutely true. Do you know what happens here? The deacon has to go down on all fours and hide behind, under the chair there, under this stinking, rotting corpse, and has to answer all of the Pope's questions, handing their, like hiding there his hands and knees like this, right? So he makes an absolute meal of it too. Steve-O, he turns to me and asks, why did you usurp the papacy? And this poor deacon, who obviously wasn't a classically trained actor, uh, answered, because I was evil. Maybe a couple of improv classes might do you the world of good there, old mate. Anyway. On the back of damning confessions such as these, Formosus is, of course, duly convicted, as you would expect, 
And uh, for the prosecution, it is just oh, handshakes and champers all around, you know, company credit cards maxed out as they are having a great time in the hotel, just, you know, partying it up, whatever else. We got him, boys. Get around us. All up. Oh, yeah, great stuff. It's, it's a big win for truth and justice. After the corpse has been found guilty, of course, the insanity don't stop till cops kick the door in here because Stephen orders him to be posthumously stripped of his titles and all that sort of boring stuff. Yep, fine, no worries. But of course, the insanity doesn't stop there, does it? No. Deciding that being defrocked isn't enough, Stephen orders that the three fingers that Formosus used for blessings uh, get chopped off again, off a corpse. Just to be clear, off a corpse. We're cutting dead tissue off of more dead tissue here. The corpse is then buried for a second time, but this time in an unmarked uh, pauper's grave, naked. And you'd think that would be the end of it. But uh, no, no, no. An M. Night Shilamila ding-dong twist ending here. Stephen still hasn't had enough. Poor old Formosus is dug up again. This is the second time. I mean, being dug up once is bad enough, but this is the second time he's dug up like an overripe spud here, and this time he has weights tied to his body before he's chucked in the Tiber River. And after this... Stephen finally decides he's had enough, and so there does that thing where you know, sort of slap you, slap you, and slide your hands past each other to show you finished. What is that? What is that called? Why doesn't that gesture have a name? It, anyway, he, he gets on with the business of poping, but not for long, uh, of course, because you know this circus act again isn't stopping, and the fact that he was just a little bit bonkers means that poor old Steve Irwin is he's in prison not long after the synod itself. But he doesn't last long in prison either. He's strangled sometime in July or in August, uh, eight ninety seven. Uh, for reasons that my very mild Googling wasn't able to uncover. And now, after this, we're back to the old revolving door approach to the papacy. The next pope to come along, Pope Romanus, only lasts for a few months. But uh, during his time, he annulled all of the stupid nonsense that Stephen had done. And so as a result, Formosus was back in the clear, which I'm sure was a great relief to the seven-fingered waterlogged corpse at the bottom of the Tiber. When Romanus dies in November 897, he's replaced with Theodore II, who uh, partook in this growing tradition of uh, mucking around with Formosus's corpse. Rather than getting dug up this time, he is now dredged up from the bottom of the Tiber and buried again. Third time, lucky, with all the bells and whistles of a proper pope's funeral. Uh, Theodore II then dies a few days later. His reign actually lasted less than three weeks. And uh, so St. Peter's Basilica would have been pretty bloody thick with papal corpses at the end of 897. Anyway, after all this stupid rubbish, after all of this nonsense is finished, John IX comes in and oversees stuff for the next couple of years, reaffirming that Formosus is a good... You know, all the people all the people in Rome are sitting on the edge of the seats. Oh, is he going to dig him up again? Bloody fourth time, we get another 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 bite of the apple here. But no, John the, John the Ninth, he, uh, he, he reaffirms that Formosus is a good bloke and that Stephen, uh, yeah, Stephen VI was, you know, just straight up crazy. And that is the end of the story. After bouncing in and out of graves like a, a haunted yo-yo, the, uh, the remains of Formosus were actually, unfortunately, destroyed when the old basilica was demolished and renovated in the 16th and 17th centuries. So, so if the current Pope, old mate uh, Francis, wants to revisit the issue, he is going to put a, uh, have to put a, a pile of crumbling dust on a chair and yell at that instead. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Cadaver Synod. I tell you what, I wonder if there is an, uh, any other institution in, in human history that has provided us with more just balls-to-the-wall insanity than the Catholic Church. I think it would be, a, it'd be, it'd be hard to, a hard act to follow, I have to say that. Anyway, 
That's that for this week. As usual, the, nor- the usual uh, boring housekeeping announcements at the end. Halfasthistory.net is the website. At History without an O, wouldn't fit very annoying, is the Twitter page if you want to get in touch. Or uh, up there I post, you know, little stuff that I've come across to every day, uh, you know, little little historical things for you to go through, little facts and, and, and tidbits to get across. And if you want to get in touch with the show, History at gmail.com is a good way to do it. All the contact form on the website, even better. I've got stickers to send out. I've already sent out a bunch and I've got I've got even more to send off. So uh, send us an email at uh, History at gmail.com with your address and I'll send them off for free, all yours and no worries at all. As usual, closing out the show with a question posed on Reddit. We talked a lot about the Catholic Church and their ridiculous traditions today and not another cliche has a good question here uh, to, to think about. Why does the Catholic Church shoot their heroes out of cannons? Thank you.